Before we begin this program today, let me remind you that we're in the midst of our spring fundraiser. If you appreciate the local programming that we provide, as well as the connection to national and international programming through Radio IQ, please consider making a gift to support us. 276-944-6593 during business hours, or go to wehcfm.com and click on Make a Gift. Welcome to this conversation. My guest today will simply be called Aaron because of the sensitivity and the private nature of the story he's going to tell us. And we appreciate him being with us and sharing this information. We're going to be talking about a subject that he's decided to talk about because of the stigma associated with it. The topic is mental illness. And we all have some variety of ups and downs in terms of our mental state. But when we're talking about the kind of mental illness that really interferes with life's activities, a lot of people don't talk about that. And Aaron wants us to know that it is simply a medical issue and that there are ways to deal with it. Is that fair? Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. No, that's a perfect introduction. No, that is fair. Um, Especially when we're talking about the very serious mental illnesses like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. Uh, most people, well, I, sh- I, I don't want to assume many people uh, have this idea of this, this preconceived notion of it. And uh, I'm here to inform that anybody with those disorders can be practically indistinguishable, completely di- indistinguishable from uh, somebody who's neurotypical. Neurotypical. So that's a new term. How would you describe being neurotypical? What is the difference between being neurotypical and then a full-blown mental illness? There's probably a more clinical definition of it, but neurotypical is somebody who has a mental illness that doesn't entirely interfere with their daily lives. Somebody with a seasonal depression and they're able to overcome it. Something with less severe mental issues than something somebody with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and schizoaffective disorder. You had a very serious episode, and you told me before the interview that your diagnosis is schizophrenia. It's a schizoaffective disorder, so it's a combination of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So what I want to do to start this story is to go back to your childhood okay, and your high school years and your college years. Did you have any kind of clue, any kind of warning? Did you see yourself as being neuro different, I guess, uh, in retrospect from others? I thought I would be the last person to develop uh, a disorder such as this. I thought myself completely normal in my high school years. My college year, I did have one week of thinking everyone was out to get me, but I I subscribed that to stress and I didn't I didn't think that was anything out of the ordinary. Um, I talked to other people about this psychologist about this. They all thought it was stress. I mean, when you're in college, it's a very stressful time in your life. And so you thought it was just kind of the normal level of stress that you'd gotten out of whack for a little for a week or so. And then you're back to normal. Right. And that's sort of how going back to neurotypical, how I would describe it. You know, if somebody has that feeling um, that doesn't make them any neurodifferent. But if it if it persists and it interferes with their daily life, that would make them that would be something more serious. OK, I'm going to write that down. Persistent and it interferes with daily life. Right. OK, because a lot of college students now, in fact, there have been just all kinds of recent stories about how 
our nation is in a mental health crisis right now because of right. the pandemic and all that. Yeah. So everybody, I think, is familiar with depression to some extent, anxiety to some extent. But when it's persistent and interferes with daily life is when we get serious. OK, so you graduated from college and then you went on to a university and you were working on a master's degree. That's correct. You were in at the university working on your master's degree when this happened. Is that right? That is that is correct. Uh, I had it probably about two thirds of the way in to completing my degree at this university. I was still able to finish. It was a rough road ahead. My I told my professors they were very understanding. But I, I'm a little proud of the fact that I had this episode uh, during my time at the university and I didn't skip too much of a beat. Really? Just walk us through it, Aaron. What were the first symptoms? What, what compelled you to go talk to your professors and say something's going on? Well, first of all, I would say I had these symptoms that only happened at nighttime, especially when I was laying in bed. Um, I would have, you know, very dark thoughts. Uh, I don't want to, I didn't think of them as voices at the time, but now that I know what voices are, I would say they were voices. Um, I didn't have any urge to do what the voices told me to do, uh, but they were, uh, they were dark and I just had them. And then eventually I had uh, a psychotic break, um, which put me in the mental hospital for about 10 days. And that was the only amount of time in which I missed uh, university studies. I got right back into it and it was very hard. I had some help uh, from the university as a whole, from the professors, and uh, they were all very understanding and I'm very thankful for that. Aaron, how old were you when you had this breakdown and how old are you now? I'm 27 now. I was 23 when I... Uh, was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. You know, Aaron, I, I have not known this story. I mean, I'm learning this story along with everybody else right now. But the psychotic break was very serious. You wound up in a hospital. You'd been hearing these voices that you didn't recognize as voices. What kind of things were they telling you to do? Um, I mean, they were, I don't want to get into the specifics of that, but uh, they were they were telling me dark things. They would, uh, they weren't telling me to, you know, harm anybody. They were mostly related to myself, like telling me I'm worthless. Nobody likes me. They still say those things to this day, but I've, I've never had the voices tell me to really harm anybody. And even if they did, I wouldn't have the urge to. Like they're, they're a completely separate entity from my own thoughts. Interesting. So you would wake up the next morning after having these thoughts at night and then did, were you still haunted by them during the day or was it like a switch that flipped off? It was at the time, it was a switch that flipped off. I would tell some people about these uh, voices and thoughts. But uh, again, because I didn't have any diagnosis, because I didn't have a history of this, nobody really thought anything of it. People I thought I was still a neurotypical individual. Whatever this break was, I hope you'll be able to tell us as much as possible about it. But did you feel anything coming on, anything changing prior to that? Or was it like snap? Uh, I felt the change, the dark thoughts got a little more persistent. I felt that there was an event that I won't go into uh, that caused me to uh, snap. That event uh, led to uh, me going to the hospital willingly. They, the hospital, uh, they figured I was, I was a very bad case and had the police uh, drive me 
to the mental hospital uh, at that point. Not that I did anything wrong legally. They thought it was just important that uh, the police handle that. I want to see if I can get a little more detail about the event. Was the event something that you did or was the event something that you responded to? It was something I responded to. Um, I didn't do anything. I didn't I didn't harm anybody. I yelled a bit. This I, event, something that would be typical for people to have happen or and that that just happened to trigger you or was it something yeah, really egregious? I would say I would say this happens in almost everybody's daily life. So this and, just kind of routine thing happens. And then, well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't call it routine. Like I would say it, it happens uh, once or twice in a or uh, I mean, in a lifetime. But it, 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 it was it's always something that somebody would respond negatively to. OK, so I just happened to respond a little more negatively than other people would. Was it verbal response only or was it a physical response as well? It was a, it was only verbal response. All right. So it was only verbal. Now, at this point, do you know what's going on? Do you? I mean, I, I knew during the event that I was acting not normal. I, I, it was like, I was, I was, it's like my other self was a spectator watching this event and being blown away by what was happening. I couldn't, you know, rein myself in at this time. I, I, uh, willingly went to the hospital and then so the somebody police... was there who said, Aaron, you need help. Let's go to the hospital. Yes. And you went willingly. Yes. I, and then well, they tell you that this is a very serious case of schizoaffective disorder. Well, they didn't know it was schizoaffective at the time. In fact, I, uh, I was in denial uh, at some points that I was, I knew I had a very serious case of depression at the time. I subscribed uh, my feelings to that, but uh, I didn't know, know the full extent of what I was feeling at the time. I, they didn't know it was schizoaffective at the time. That came uh, a couple weeks later, actually, even after I was out of the mental hospital. So you go to the hospital and then the hospital sends you to the mental hospital. Yes, that's correct. What was that well, like for you? It was very surreal. Um, I couldn't believe this was happening to me. I, I think that's that's something everybody should know like you never you, I thought I was the last person this would happen to um so I think anybody's capable of of uh feeling this way committing some sort of actions that might uh land them in the hospital is capable of doing that so you find yourself in a mental hospital and you're thinking how can this be me and then what is the treatment like what do they do for you when I was in the mental hospital, there was uh, there were quite a few people who were felons in there. They told me it's it's a little bit better than a jail. Uh, it's a little more comfortable, but uh, the whole routine aspect of it, being told to get up and go to lunch, go to breakfast, the fact that you couldn't leave the hospital if you really wanted to, you couldn't do that. It's a little bit of a routine. And, you know, when they were prescribing you medication, you had to show them that you were taking it and that you didn't spit it out. I actually do remember quite a bit. Uh, the hospital was very meticulously designed to prevent you from harming yourself. 
there were no doorknobs actually that there there were like small lips that you can put your fingers into and open the door uh the top of the doors were all slanted uh there were no curtain rods they were just velcroed on plastic knives and forks were even more dull than the plastic knives and forks you would buy at a supermarket if you wanted to use hand sanitizer you had to make sure you you know completely rubbed it off in front of a nurse you know in in case they thought you might swallow it or something like that the sheets would rip if you put enough weight on them it it was very thoughtfully designed to prevent somebody uh from harming themselves describe the process from beginning to end what it was like and how you began to feel better enough that they released you well i i think we should start with the first hospital i went to where they evaluated me I I told them all the symptoms I was having, that I wasn't getting enough sleep, that I was extremely depressed, um, the life events that were happening in my life, and among other things that I won't get into. And I told them about the dark thoughts. I told them generally I had dark thoughts. I didn't tell them what they were. I still haven't really told anybody what exactly they are, and I I think I'll keep it that way. They... uh, assessed that I should be brought into the mental hospital. And that's when the police drove me there. I didn't have to be handcuffed or anything. They didn't think I was a threat in any way. And then I went into the mental hospital around four in the morning. They gave me some clothes and, well, they made me take off my shoes because, you know, they don't want you to have shoelaces. They told me that uh, they'll tell me everything in the morning and then just gave me a, a, a bed uh, shared with other people in the room. That's how that first day went. And then the next day, I met with a doctor who asked me all these types of questions regarding my mental health. Were you feeling any sort of relief, like in recognizing that you're now getting help? Or were you feeling resistant to the process? I was definitely resistant at first. I, I wasn't t- telling them the full extent of what I was feeling. Whenever they asked me, you know, do you have any thoughts of harming others? I always firmly told them no, because I, I, I never had any thoughts of harming others. I still don't. I don't think I ever will. But whenever they asked me thoughts of, do you have thoughts of harming yourself? I told them no. And I, I did have thoughts of harming myself. Eventually, over the next two weeks, I'm assuming that you became more open. Yes. Yeah, I did become more open. And it, it, it did come out eventually. Uh, I, in fact, that was the reason why my stay in the hospital was extended is because I had, an, I don't want to say another break, but I, I felt so down and depressed. I confided into a nurse that, I, yeah, I, I had a plan to harm myself after I got out. And uh, that extended my stay. That increased my medication. Yeah, we just went from there. Let's kind of try to conclude uh, the description of what happened over those next two weeks so that we can move on to what happened after you were released. Um, I was mostly just staying with my family uh, who were very supportive of me, very understanding. And that was a great environment to be in. Um, But we went to another mental health facility where I was completely open about everything. And that's when I got the diagnosis that I uh, have schizoaffective disorder. You know, they say that secrets kill us, the things that we can't talk about. Anything else that you would want to add about the process before your release and what kind of change there was? Not that I know of. I might 
tell later in the story if it comes to mind, but I think I shared everything I wanted to. And the reason that you wanted to talk today and have people hear your story, Aaron, is what? Is to tear down uh, the stigma that, you know, anybody with schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective, uh, is incapable of doing good things, that there are all these crazy people walking on the streets, yelling at the clouds, uh, shaking, uh, you know, rocking in the corner of a room somewhere. It's, it's just, it's not true. The way that movies portray them also and TV shows, it's like anytime somebody is a killer, they have to be somebody with schizophrenia. It's, it's a little uh, cliche and just not true. Actually, people with uh, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder are much more of a harm to themselves than to other people that should be known to the population. Uh, I mean, does it sound like that when I'm speaking to you? Does it sound like I might even have this illness at all? Oh, heavens no. Oh, heavenly days, no. But uh, when on that topic about the depictions of schizophrenia, there was a woman that I used to work with who had a son who was schizophrenic Mm -hmm. and he would have breakdowns. He'd go off of his medication and he would do violent things. She always used to preach to us that mental health issues are handled in jails, which they shouldn't be, and that people should be treated. So I think that's interesting in connection with what you said, because in your story, there is a good ending. You got treatment. You got on medication. What do you think would have happened if you hadn't? I don't know. I always ask myself that question, like what happened if I was the same person 100 years ago where the medication was pretty much non-existent, where the thoughts towards people, you know, they would, they'd be a mental health ward, which is practically a jail. Um, uh, the conditions would have been worse. I, I, I don't know what would have happened. And that's why I'm thankful uh, for living in the time that I am now. Um, but honestly, I, I really just don't know. It's a scary thought because you had a loving family to take you in to take care of you. You had access to excellent mental health treatment in multiple hospitals. Do you still, do you do anything now other than medication? Do you see a counselor? Are there other things that you do to kind of keep yourself stable and feeling good? Well, medication does all of the heavy lifting, I would say. Uh, But I do do meditation. Uh, My family recommends I read, you know, these best self books, uh, Mm -hmm. which I'm currently reading right now. Yeah, medication does much of the heavy lifting. I I listen to my family and whatever advice they have, I I take it with much more than a grain of salt. I I really follow it. You said at the beginning that after you got out of the hospital, you went right back to the university and finished your degree. Yeah, that's correct. Which is astounding. Oh my gosh. So now when you go back, are you immediately seeing the stigma? Do people know Do you want them to know what's it like when you go back into the world? I mean, I I recognize the stigma, but I didn't I didn't tell people immediately that would come later uh, in which I told people. Yeah, I I did see the stigma uh, now that it was affecting me. That was something from day one that I wanted to uh, address. What were the things that people said or did that made you realize that anybody who had a hint 
that you had had a mental breakdown would be treating you differently. I never, I never really got that. People treated me as if nothing happened at all. Um, in many cases, I don't know if they're saying anything behind my back. I don't really, that doesn't really matter to me at this point because I, I have a loving family. I have many, many great friends who don't judge me in the slightest. It's just something they know and that's it. No, no, I didn't. I never got the feeling that people treated me any differently. They felt, if anything, they were just sympathetic, but that's it. What then, when you say the stigma, what are you, what are you talking about? You're talking about, you mentioned the portrayal in movies and that kind of thing, but what is the stigma that is attached? Well, I think my case is a little, what's the word, uh, privileged in a way. It, I, I was, again, raised in a good environment. I think being at a university in which there is a lot of people who are educated on the topic, they understand the situation a little better than somebody who might not be as educated on the topic. I, I, I see the stigma, you know, in general. I, I have people who who've told me stories, friends who told me stories where they didn't say my name. And uh, they said, yeah, my friend has uh, schizophrenia. And, you know, maybe his grandmother says, oh, watch out for that one. She and then uh, I've actually met her. She didn't know I, I was the friend and she embraced me lovingly. Uh, and uh, she still doesn't know I have the uh, disorder. Tell us about the job you have now and how complicated was it to get that job? Uh, the, it, the job itself uh, wasn't complicated to get. It's a retail job. I was working it while I was convalescing, but. I've found myself to be dependable and efficient at work. And I think it's time I search for a more professional job that utilizes my degrees. Um, as far as what it is, I won't really say. It's just, it's a retail job. Well, tell us a little bit more about what it feels like in this job. Do you work with a lot of people? How does it feel now compared to earlier times when this illness was coming on? Um, I don't work with too many people, maybe four or five max, uh, just co-workers, not with uh, the public. It doesn't, I feel almost pretty much neurotypical as the word uh, we used earlier. And it seems uh, like I'm ready for uh, another job, maybe with similar settings, not working with the public, just more in an office setting. You talk about you still have the disorder. Is it healthy for you to talk about this in some ways, or is it more just kind of a, a gift that you're giving to the audience today? I think it was healthy at first because I wanted people to know it just felt like getting something off my chest. But now it's just something that I'm trying to inform everybody of. And I just want them to know that I am normal. Many people with this disorder can be completely normal too. Again, indistinguishable from somebody who's neurotypical. What would be your advice now if there would happen to be somebody who's listening and they're feeling depressed? but they're not sure how seriously to take the depression. They don't know what steps to take, what to do. What would you say to those people? That's something I'm still wrestling with because for one, I, I hate this idea of somebody telling somebody else to get help. Like, first of all, if you just say get help, that's almost meaningless. In fact, I feel like that's a little insulting in a way too. But if, if, if you have this urge to, uh, let somebody know, especially a mental health professional, I really would suggest you act on that urge, even if it's something very slight, because you don't know if it's going to snowball into something more serious. People who don't know anybody who's had a serious mental health issue and feel like that they're 
neurotypical. What do you say to them in general? I honestly, I wasn't really expecting that question, even though it's something I've been wrestling with. I I would just say that you don't know, you really don't, because there's so many people, uh, we're living in an age where people are, are coming out with their sexuality, for instance. I don't think we're living in that age quite yet where somebody's coming out with their mental health issues. I would tell them that you really don't know anybody whether or not they have these mental health issues. You, you, you might know I am because I'm very open about it. Um, but I still I'm not telling my full name on on this radio show because of the stigma around it. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't just by listening to me, I would just observe the actions and, you know, the talking of individuals and assess for yourself whether or not it's something you need to be concerned about. And uh, you know what I expected, because I've heard this before, is that mental health professionals try to remind us that if it was cancer, people would go, oh, okay, it's cancer and they're being treated. Well, this is just something that's happening in the mental part of our physical being. Right. And it's no different. The fact that we think there's a stigma attached to it is just because we're not seeing things clearly. We're not seeing the human being there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was always told that that, you know, schizophrenia arises from a physical condition. It's it's a physical problem, chemical imbalance in your brain. Um, It's not some sort of mystical thing that's hovering around you that you want to keep quiet about. It's it's a physical problem, just like cancer. which manifests different symptoms. Aaron, you've given us so much to think about, and you've been so brave and generous and kind to share your story. Any final word? I'm, you know, getting better every day. And I really wish anybody who has any doubts about maybe seeing professional, whether no matter how big or small, uh, would go and act on those uh, on those urges to see a professional uh, and to not have any doubts because you never know how bad it's going to be. Um, but at the end of the day, with modern medicine, with things progressing in terms of the mental health industry, even though it may not seem like it right now, this pandemic and uh, among other things, I do think we're, we're fostering an, an environment uh, in which people can get the care they need. It's smart to ask for help. Thank you so much for being with us and reminding us of these important issues at this crucial time. Thank Aaron, you very much. my guest Thank today. And thank you to the audience for tuning in, as always, to this conversation Wednesday at 6, Sunday at 2, and available in previous episodes at WEHCFM.com. Again, I'd like to remind you that we're in the midst of our spring fundraiser. If you enjoyed the previous program and appreciate other local hours of programming here on WEHC, please consider making a contribution. If you'd like to be a day sponsor and have several announcements in a day, in honor of an organization or an individual, consider a day sponsor for $100. If you have comments about this program or other programs, you can reach us at wehc at ehc.edu. We thank you for considering making a gift to WEHC in this spring fundraiser, 276-944-6593, or going to wehcfm.com, make a gift. Thanks again for being part of WEHC.